Welcome to the Immigrant Stories Program. I'm your host, Walter Gallagher, and my interview today is with journalist and former Valley resident Kelsey Freeman and her sister Tess. Kelsey spent the fall of 2016 and most of 2017 in a migrant shelter in Mexico, interviewing Central American migrants who were fleeing Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala and heading north to the United States. Her book, No Option But North, blends the stories of the migrants she met with her insights into the systemic failures that forced them to flee in the first place. During the last two months of her stay, Kelsey was joined by her sister Tess, a photojournalist. Tess spent her time photographing many of the migrants who are profiled in the book. Kelsey and Tess joined me via Skype to discuss the book and their time together. Kelsey and Tess Freeman, thanks for joining me for Immigrant Stories, and thanks for your work on this amazing and insightful book, No Option But North. It answers the question, every chapter answers the question, why do these people, why are they here? Why do they flee their country? We don't understand, but I... done an amazing job to try to help people understand all of the the challenges and barriers and the, the terror that these folks face on a daily basis. So I, I want to thank you for that. What thank, can you thank you, Walter? It's good to be here and talk with you. Can you talk about the genesis of this book? I mean it didn't just happen. It's probably been in your bones for a long time. Kelsey, you want to start? Yeah, well, we grew up in the Valley. Um, and so I think we both always wanted to, to learn Spanish, to, to better connect across our own community. But then for me, the book began, really began when I was an undergraduate. I was traveling in Chiapas doing research for my undergraduate thesis, which focused on indigenous social movements. But during that time, I was seeing how connected indigenous rights were with immigration. I was on a bus ride one time and had a conversation with the man next to me who had been deported from California. And he asked me, how is it that you can come to my country to study my people for two weeks when I've been repeatedly denied for a visa to go back and visit my family in California? And the question stuck with me, how could it not Um, And it caused me to want to go deeper into how is it that nationality and race and class all play a role in who gets to come here through our legal processes and who has to undergo this perilous journey north. Yeah, it's, it's not a question you can answer, is it? I mean, it's all about our privilege. And that runs through the book, just trying to deal with our white privilege and uh yeah I, I i understand i think i do i do to some extent i i was a vista volunteer on the pine ridge reservation when i was your age so i had some of those why am i so able to move about in the world and have this privilege that others don't so that really resonated with me f- throughout the book you uh I don't want to give too much of the book away because I think people really do need to read it. It's, it's very powerful. Um, you both have this passion. Uh, where did that come from? Talk about 
growing up as sisters, if you would, just to start. Kelsey and I are three years apart and I'm older and um, we just, I, my background is in photojournalism and those skill sets just com have complemented each other very well. And when Kelsey asked me to, if I wanted to come take photos for the book, I kind of shaped my life around getting to come down there for six weeks and working as a photojournalist, it's rare that you have this, like such camaraderie with a writer. And I think that just made working with her that much better. Well, not all sisters are close, but it sounds like you guys are. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we still live together. So <laughs> that's something too. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I have three brothers that I'm, I share that same sort of feeling about the closeness. So I've, I've dreamed of doing a project with my brother and never have. So I, I think this is wonderful that you did. Uh, you were, Tess, you were there with Kelsey at a, at a really difficult time too, right? Can you talk a little bit about? Yeah, um, I think if you've read the last section of the book, I was there during that whole last time and it just, it felt very surreal and, but also I was grateful that I was able to be there with her and she wasn't tackling these huge questions alone and we've always been able to talk through things and and also during that time, Kelsey was in the hospital a couple times with dehydration. And so that just um, added to the heaviness of that time. But um, we've been through a lot together. And so we've been able to face challenges head on and um, with also an element of humor and um, like just adding light to a really dark situation. Yeah. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Immigrant Stories program. And my interview today is with author Kelsey Freeman and her sister, photojournalist Tess Freeman. Kelsey spent nine months in Mexico interviewing Central American migrants at a migrant shelter where she worked. The migrants were heading north to the U.S. Her sister Tess joined her for the last two months and photographed many of the migrants featured in the book. One of the the sections of the book that brought me to tears that I was um, about the two sisters. Yeah, um, we met that family. The parents were Jackie and Ernesto, and they had two little girls, Maria and Jocelyn, and um, who were three and six years old. And um, Jackie was eight months pregnant too. So if you can imagine making this journey via freight train, La Bestia, as the migrants we spoke to call it, um, it I think it's, it's another example of how much migrants sacrifice, how much violence they are navigating just to get to the border, never mind cross it. So yeah, we spent, that was one of the families that we spent the most time with because they stayed in a long-term shelter um, while Jackie could, um, you know, give birth and such. Well, you know, people who see that, they who are ignorant, and there's a lot of us, go, why would parents take th two small children? Why would a pregnant woman 
leave her country and her family. And I think it's interpreted sometimes as uh, just being frivolous and and uh, ignorant. I, I, I don't know the words that people might use, but I hear that. Can you respond to what what drive some of the elements that are driving people out of their country, Kelsey? Yeah, certainly. I mean, people have attached all sorts of stereotypes to demonize people that are fleeing. But I think that's when we don't empathize with being in a situation of extreme desperation. You know, there's a reason people are risking their lives on the journey north. It's because there's greater risk in staying. There's greater suffering at home. And so the main reasons um, that I saw in speaking with people were, uh, you know, profound lack of economic opportunity, just no way to make a living at home. And when you can make in an hour what might take days to earn at home, people do what they can to provide for their families. Family was another huge theme, reconnecting with kids in the U.S. I spoke to a lot of parents of U.S. citizen children who were trying for the fifth or sixth time to cross the border because they were unwilling to accept the reality of living up or living without their kids as they grow up. I think most of us, you know, in that situation would do the same. And then the kind of most growing reason or the reason that's getting worse is gang violence. Um, these are everyday citizens who want nothing to do with gangs or cartels, but as cartels take over and gangs take over, they increasingly touch the lives of everyday citizens and threaten people, everyone from business owners to taxi drivers to parents um, who find that fleeing is their only option. Yeah, when I recorded some Central Americans early on in this in the project that the Immigrant Stories Project, I don't know that the cartels, I mean, I know that they were operating and were powerful, but I don't know that they were as involved in the trafficking the immigrant of immigrants. Can you speak to that some? Yeah, so cartels play a really essential role in this story in two horrible ways. First, they're the reason why a lot of people flee in the first place. So for instance, I spoke to a lot of business owners who across uh, Mexico and the Northern Triangle, that is Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, um, business owners have to pay a tax to the local gang or cartel simply for existing, this extortion fee. So what happens if you can no longer pay that? Well, you know, the local gang threatens you, you come under their, their gaze, um, and increasingly your only option to survive is to leave. So they're the reason why a lot of people are fleeing in the first place. But cartels in Mexico have made a whole industry out of kidnapping and targeting migrants. That has become a lot worse in the last decade or so. Why is it that cartels are focused on immigrants now when they weren't in the past? What, what do they see as an advantage for them? Well, in this warped kind of way, it's a... Um, diversification of industries in this really backwards way, right? Because cartels in Mexico are, are constantly battling each other for territory. And that's where civilians get caught up a lot of times, get caught in the crosshairs. And so for some cartels, uh, Los Zetas is one of the main cartels that has made my kidnapping migrants this industry. 
in some ways it's a it's a financial thing it's a power thing and it's the fact that you know if if you kidnap a hundred migrants and hold them for ransom until their family in the U.S. pays no one is watching right people are looking the other way Mexican authorities are looking the other way or in some cases even you know working with organized crime in that way so it's another example of being migrants being put in this really vulnerable position as they transit through Mexico, Central American migrants in particular. You talked about how migrants can then be reused. Can you speak to that when they, they kidnap the migrants and then use them for other things? Yeah, I mean, it's an unimaginable uh, web of violence. Like I said, the stories that would roll through the shelter where I was interviewing were just astounding. So I spoke with people who had been kidnapped. I spoke with people who had been kidnapped, released, and then kidnapped again. I spoke with people who had experienced sexual assault, which is really rampant on this journey north. So all the trauma that is layered up from just that journey alone, never mind what you're fleeing in the first place, is really heavy. Um, so I think recognizing that too is important. You know, Mexico and Central America are typified as, as very violent places. And it sort of overlooks, I mean, folks, we folks in the United States sort of overlooks that other countries see us as very violent. I mean, we, we look at it with, with, uh, with shades on in some ways, you know, not, not taking into account that the same sort of violent behavior is part of our culture. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Most migrants I spoke to, too, did not have a rosy colored vision of the United States. You know, they weren't tracing some American dream. I spoke with a, a man, Roberto, in the book who yes. said, you know, um, I know I'm going to be exploited in the U.S. He had a degree in computer science, but he said, I'll take a job for $5 an hour scrubbing toilets because it's my only option left. So migrants I spoke to, you know, knew that that life in the United States would not be easy or that, yeah, they would be exploited, which is a hard reality to sit with. Imagine that. But um, again, it's it they most felt like it was their only option. Yeah, it just mystifies me where we wouldn't want those kinds of people in our country because they're persistent, they're hopeful, and they work themselves blind sometimes. It's it, Yeah, it's amazing. Tess, when you were photographing those two little girls in that family, I mean, were... It was, I mean, they, of course, they reminded me of me, Kelsey and I as well, and, but just knowing the, what they, their past had been like, and their, what they had been experienced, just like, added a heaviness to the first interaction, and I usually put my camera down, interact just as a person when I first meet people, and then I start photographing, and um, yeah, just getting to like play with the two girls for a little bit, and um, I think we got to color together, and that was important before like taking out my camera and shoving it in their faces. Yeah, <laughs> and, that's never a good idea if you really want a portrait, is it? Yeah, just being able to show like the vulnerability through photographs too, I think added 
yeah. elements of the story. Yeah, they're beautiful. Feel and there's in um, knowing what those two girls have been through, and then Ernesto, he just had like the most amazing smile. So getting being able to capture that. Well, he was definitely the father who was trying to do everything for his family, as it reflects in the book. Yeah. Do you know what happened to that family? There were the ones that we lost touch with that, you know, I tried to stay in contact via Facebook or WhatsApp, but um, yeah, I haven't heard from them. What about Rosaria? Yeah. So Rosaria was a woman we spoke with um, who again uh, was in this long-term shelter and she was in limbo. She was trying to decide what her next move was. She was from Guatemala City, had left because she had been threatened by gangs. She and her husband had been threatened by gangs. And then in route in Celaya, the city we were in, um, her husband was kidnapped. And so she then was trying to figure out what to do, trying to figure out um, any leads to find him. Um, and whether to continue onward or not. She had been in this long-term shelter for for a month at the point that we met her and she stayed for another month. But as a woman traveling alone too, she was at incredible risk. There's different figures and it's hard to pin down an exact number, but scholars estimate that as many as as 80% of the women that attempt this journey experience some form of sexual assault. On the way, oh. which is astounding like to knowingly take on that type of life-altering trauma again says a lot about the situations people are fleeing um so rosara um at she was yeah trying to look for work in salaya was unsuccessful there um and then eventually decided to go back to guatemala city even though she felt like her life was at risk and going back <sighs> Yeah. What was it like to return? Yeah, I think it just highlights your the privilege um, we as white people have and just being able to return home, snap of a finger on a plane ride. And I think, too, with the book, you know, with no option but north, I part of it is stories, right? Empathizing with the people who are making this journey north. But I wanted to situate those stories in context so that people understand the structural and political realities that make those stories possible. And then if we wanna take it a step further to really understand why those policies exist, we have to understand power, power and privilege because that's what dictates you know, how policies come together. Right. And I think it points to this really essential question of, who has the right to be safe? Whose safety are we prioritizing? Because my safety was certainly prioritized. I was in Salaya and ended up getting moved by the Fulbright Commission. And then I went home the next month. So I had all these safety nets. But for the people I was speaking to, no one was prioritizing their safety. No Mexican government agency no discourse that we hear, political discourse that we hear in the United States really prioritizes their safety. So again, that's about power and understanding it is essential. Well, and that 
that that that is a powerful part of of the book is that it's a primer it's it's the stories of immigrants but it's also the story of power and and structure and bureaucracy and what that has done to these immigrants so it it jumps back and forth in a way that really is insightful for those of us who who have no clue you talk about the five forces and you've you've talked about some of them the cartels slash gangs, the polleros, the coy- which is another word for the coyotes, coyotes, mm-hmm. la migra, the trained security guards. Yeah, so those are all, you know, people or or kind of characters in this journey that all make, all, all are targeting migrants in some way. So like the trained security guards who I haven't spoken to as much or spoken about as much um, are private security guards hired by the train companies to patrol the freight trains. So um, first of all, for Central American migrants transiting through Mexico, the majority rely on a series of freight trains that snake through Mexico. That's La Bestia that I referred to earlier, the beast. The beast. Mm -hmm. And so imagine taking a freight train that was never meant for humans that's a whole nother uh, risk that migrants take on and then on top of that cartels will patrol the trains to target migrants Um, and then the trains themselves will hire um, private security guards to kind of club people to get them off the trains they rob people often Um, so i met a lot of people that have had violent encounters with train security guards too yeah, the deep, deep poverty that that is there, and and the the command of the cartels. I mean, the cartels are are part of the government. I mean, and that comes through in the book. Yeah, so there's this very fine line, um, and that's where corruption, you know, kind of plays a role. Very fine line between state entities and these non-state actors of cartels and gangs. Um, And the line is fluid sometimes. Sometimes it's, you know, state police helping the cartel. Sometimes it's them looking the other way. So corruption is a really hard thing to fight in Mexico and and across the globe. And it even pervades the the shelters where the migrants seek shelter. Yes, so that is points to migrants do not know who they can trust along this journey often because even the the woman selling tacos on the corner who offers them a place to sleep at night might be working for organized crime and that's true of shelters at times too as i found out um and and i've gone back and talked to many of the migrants i've interviewed about this question of well, if even the supposed, you know, refuges are not safe, what do you do? And they say, we do the best we can. We hope for the best. We pray. So things are so bad that they they would know that they might be vulnerable in a shelter, but that's all they they have. Yeah, exactly. Tess, who who resonated for you as you took these photos? Definitely Rosara. Um just knowing the impossible situation she was in, um, but also her tenacity was so inspiring for me. And 
um, we spent a day in the market with her going from vendor to vendor trying to see if anyone would hire her. Well, the sense of hopelessness that you must have seen and, and helplessness on your part too. Yeah. Yeah. Very exasperated. What happened? What happened to her husband? They were looking for work as many migrants do along the journey North to be able to continue. A man approached them, said to her husband, come meet me tomorrow. I've got work for you. He said, great. He went to meet the man and then he never came back. And Rosara did file a police report, which is rare for migrants, mm. you know, Central American migrants who are trying to avoid authority. But kidnapping cases in Mexico are so common that an end result is extremely rare. Yeah, and it goes back to show, like, who can they really trust? Nobody. Well, and you must have, you must have felt that way at times. Who can... Who can I trust? Who can you trust? To a degree, yes. But I also know that, you know, for me, it's very different because, you know, these all these organized crime units target migrants because they're vulnerable. And, and I'm just not, again, because my safety is prioritized in this way where everybody should be. I think the what the moment Tess spoke about where we went with Rosara to the market to help her look for work. We did that because the shelter director asked us to go with Rosara so she wouldn't be, you know, taken advantage of or, or you know, kidnapped, et cetera. And I think, you know, this, this image of our presence helping keep Rosara safer, you know, again, is, is emblematic of the larger themes at play. That was Kelsey Friedman and her sister Tess talking about their book, No Option But North. To learn more about them and the work they're doing, please go to their websites, kelseyfreemanauthor.com and tessfreemanphoto.com. You've been listening to the Immigrant Stories program. To learn more about Immigrant Stories, go to our website, immigrantstories.net, or subscribe online to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.